please sit comfortably. So good morning everyone. Good to be sitting together again in stillness. Uh, just some opening remarks, um, just to comment on the, the architecture of the, the um, room and the, the buildings um, we're sitting in today. They're deliberately um, asymmetrical and uh, and asymmetry is actually the nature of life. Um, symmetry is kind of like a human construction of perfection, but you don't find much symmetry in the natural world. It's all asymmetrical. And if you reflect on Zen art, like Zen drawings, Zen paintings, Zen pottery, asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. It's to capture that that same essence of what the nature of life fundamentally is. And uh, biologists and scientists will, um, will attest to the same thing. Uh, I hope I've got my X's and Y's right here, but with male and female chromosomes, female has two X's, which is a symmetry. Male is an X and a Y, but you put the two together and it's asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. And um, even with our left and right hemisphere of the brain, they're not symmetrical. The right hemisphere is larger, has a different shape. Life can't be born out of symmetry. It's born out of, life is born out of asymmetry. Um, and so we're lucky to be in a somewhat, it's got some, some square features to it and straight lines and so on, which come out of people's heads rather than nature. But it's nice that there's some asymmetry in the, uh, the building that we're in. One of the things I'd like to mention as well that often I've been mentioning more at the end of session, Tarzenkai, is that we have our formal practice of doing meditation like we do now, either at home or, or here. But I really strongly encourage everyone to practice informally by being in nature as much as you possibly can. Get away from screens, get away from that conceptual, human-made kind of experience of language and so on, and spend as much time in nature. And then you absorb all of that asymmetrical, wriggly lines, no straight lines, no boxes. Uh, You you just absorb it into your being by, by being out there. And um, we know from all of the research that one of the most important things uh, for human beings' well-being, um, apart from social cohesion and belonging, is uh, to have a connection with nature. Mm. But it's important how you approach it. Don't do it in the sense of go out into nature because it's good for you, it's good for your health. It's like it's like it's a means to an end. Like eat oranges because they've got vitamin C in them, they're good for you. Go out with the spirit of enjoying it, right? Not, not because it can be good for you. That misses the point. But just absorb yourself in nature, whether you love the ocean or the mountains or the forests or the valleys or whatever. Just be out there and, and enjoy it and receive it. Um, when I walk around on bushwalks, you know, and so on, or just out in nature, um, and I observe other people, they often come to a, um, like a scenic lookout or whatever, and they look at it for about maybe 10 seconds, 
and it's like, okay, we've been there, done that, can see that. Then they take a selfie and then they go, you know. Um, but if you really want to absorb it, you you stay there and you just and you just sit there quietly with it for a sustained period of time and just let it soak into you. Like ten minutes, quarter of an hour, half an hour, it becomes like a meditation. And that's where meditation helps us with being in nature. It's just empty the mind so you can absorb all of that natural life around you, teeming life in all its diversity around you. And you and it helps you take be in touch with your own true nature. No symmetry inside of it, it's all wriggly lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, Anya took me for a, a bushwalk through a forest and we were listening to the lyrebirds. And as you know, lyrebirds mimic all the other birds in the forest and all different types of sounds. And um, it's wonderful just to stop and listen to them. And uh, what's interesting about the lyrebird as an Australian bird is the lyrebird teaches us. The lyrebird is saying, I'm not just a lyrebird, right? I'm a whipbird, right? Um, I'm a cockatoo. I'm even a chainsaw. Uh-huh. I'm everything. Right? So it, it, it's a, an expression of, of interbeing. And there's an interesting Aboriginal story, um, Dreamtime story, I remember reading years ago when we were listening to the lyrebird yesterday, it came to mind. And the story was that initially, um, all the animals could speak each other's language, you know, and and uh, understand what they're all saying. But then some animals started to misuse the language, and they started to be arrogant and superior and put down other animals and um, basically um, abuse language, the gift of language. But the live bird never did that, and so the Dreamtime spirit decided, if you're going to misuse this language. I'm going to take your ability away to speak to one another, but the lyrebird can have it because the lyrebird has right speech. <laughs> Good Buddhist uh, 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 lesson in that. What I wanted to talk a little bit about today, um, to give it a title, is Zen and philosophy. Now, a little bit of background. When I went to university, I actually did a um, degree in philosophy as well as psychology, and um, but I was primarily interested in philosophy. And when I and I haven't really um, talked about that or or tell other people much about it because I think through the years I kind of felt well philosophy is a bit sort of waffly, you know. Um, but now in my older years, I really value the fact that I went through that training. And um, the way that I think about now is that psychology taught me what to think, but philosophy taught me how to think and to get outside of fixed ideas of what we think is true and so on and question it. And I really value that. Um, And generally speaking, when you read Zen books, you're kind of get the impression in many Zen books that Zen is kind of anti-philosophical. You know, it's a non-conceptual way of actually experiencing life that gets outside of the 
the limitations of language. But Zen also uses language to describe things. Uh, it might be more poetic kind of language, you know, paradoxical language like Dogen's writing, but we, we still use language. And there's an integration that I experience now. To me, a Zen way of experiencing life is kind of primary, you know, that non-conceptual direct way of, of, of uh, relating to life or being life. But it's very interesting as well to try and understand it from an intellectual or a psychological point of view or a scientific point of view and bring that to it as well. But if you live in explanations, if you live in concepts, um, there's, a, there's a trap in that. And that's what so many of us do, um, whether we're highly educated or not highly educated. We live in certain kind of intellectual paradigms, you know, that our, our culture teaches us and it's important to question them. Um, it's surprising, even for Zen students, you know, um, how much we become... Oh, thank you. Ta. How much we become hypnotised by cultural metaphors or ideas and how much we live in explanations rather than live in the, the live reality of what's actually happening here and now. You take an example, um, the law of gravity, right? Um, and we think, well, the law of gravity is an explanation for why that happens, right? But why does the paper fall to the ground? Same way of showing it. Just that, right? The law of gravity is just an explanation. It's a string of words and concepts put together um, to explain why that happens, right? But it's not the live reality of hmm? the difference between the two. Yet how much we live in explanation, how, how much we live in that explanatory world. And so that's the real world. It's not the real world. Paper falling is the real world. Um, one aspect of philosophy is what is called ontology. Ontology is the study of being. There's other forms of philosophy like epistemology, like how do we know what we know and so on. They're all integrated. But ontology is about um, the study of being, like what is the nature of being. And one thing to consider if you think of all of the, you know, the great philosophers in the, in the Western tradition, they're serious people who really wanted to understand what the truth of life is, was. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very highly motivated people who, you know, try and look outside of their cultural paradigms, think clearly, think directly, reflect. And um, they've got a strong aspiration to understand the truth. So that's what they have in common with, with Zen training too. We want to see directly into the nature of things. It's just that philosophers do it through the intellect and through language. Um, and as Zen practitioners, we do it through a, a non-verbal, non-language, um, 
direct experience of what is. But then we can put language to it, to, to communicate it to others or to give a, a depth of understanding to it. But for me, the Zen non-conceptual way, the beginning is, is primary in that. Otherwise, you get caught up in uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, complicated thinking. And as I've said many times before, the, 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 Zen, the, the Chinese character for Zen, it means meditation, but it also, the, the meaning is um, manifesting simplicity. And if your Zen practice is a manifesting simplicity in the way that you experience yourself and your life, then, you, then you're moving in the right direction. If you get into more complex thinking and conceptual comparing and so on, you're off track. Now, when we look at ontology, some of the basic aspects of experience that, that we're, we're aware of as a, a meditator, um, but you could study philosophically as well, space, time. Such a, there is such a thing as space. There is such thing as time. There is such a thing as consciousness. Right? There is such a thing as embodiment in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you study them philosophically, and if you study them from a Zen perspective, we don't really know what they are. We know that we know there's something like space and time and consciousness, embodiment, but we don't really know what they are. And we can, we can live in the mystery of that fundamentally and, and celebrate the mystery of this experience that we're actually alive and conscious in a world. Um, but do we really understand it scientifically or philosophically? A lot of people would say that it's actually beyond human comprehension to do that. It's like, can you te- could, it, could you ever teach a dog to understand calculus? Right, probably not. Mm-hmm. Can, you ever, can human beings ever be taught to really understand what the nature of existence is? It's a mystery. Mm-hmm. And when you look at all of the, the great mystical traditions within Christianity or in Buddhism, um, like the title of the Christian book, The Cloud of Unknowing, we don't, if you think you understand God, you don't understand God. If you think you understand Zen, you don't understand Zen. Because it's in a sense, we live the mystery. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be experienced and enjoyed and loved. One of the fundamental paradigms um, conceptual ways of thinking or metaphors that we have which permeates our culture in ways we're probably unconscious of is that we're influenced by a scientific point of view and a philosophical point of view that materialism is somehow true and that the sort of the foundation of reality and that um, something like consciousness it's just something that evolved out of material, biological evolution. Some, some animals got to a point where so many neurons, so many 
electrons fire together that they create a consciousness. Um, and then there's the, out of that grows the idea that human beings are kind of like a machine. You know, the more we become computerised and everything, the more industrialised we become. We, we have a paradigm that human beings are like machines. And if you can just work out how, how the machine works, well, then, then, then you'll, you'll understand everything. You'll be able to manipulate it and change it and so on. But that's based on the idea that there's some simple chain of cause and effect. You, know, you just have to work out the algorithms and the different chains of cause and effect and you'll be able to work the whole thing out. A lot of psychology is based on that model, even though people wouldn't be conscious of it. But when you look at it from a Zen perspective and when you look at it through the eyes of... Um, modern psychologists, philosophers like Ian McGilchrist, who I've mentioned a number of times, he, he, he challenges that idea of the machine very much. And that instead of thinking of a human being or a life form as a, a bundle of cause and effects chains, we're more like a stream, just like a stream that runs down through a river. A stream doesn't have, it's all just one thing. It has patterns within it. We can see patterns and we can see flow and we can see a cohesiveness of something coming together that we call a human being or a, a rabbit you know, or a magpie. Um, but it's all, everything is, it's all interbeing. It's all interconnected. You can't pull it apart and look at the bits and pieces and think you understand it. If you, if you understand interbeing, you see that everything just comes as a whole, right? You need to be able to understand the whole. And if we, if we have an understanding of ourselves based on those kind of unconscious paradigms, it, it does impact on the way that we live our lives and the way that we understand and what we ignore. Mm -hmm. And... Except for modern times, nearly all cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, but a lot of Western cultures, what was primary was consciousness. Right? And you might call it spirit or soul or whatever, dream time, but what was primary is consciousness. And if there's anything that we know exists, it's consciousness. Because even if you deny Consciousness, you're conscious of denying it. Right. So consciousness is, in philosophical terms, is what is described as a, an ontological primitive. It's kind of like it's a given which is there. Um, and what a lot of scientists and philosophers would tell us now is that there's matter. We've always thought matter was the, was the foundation of reality. But a lot of quantum physics scientists and philosophers now would say, say to us, we actually don't know what matter is anymore. It's waves and it's particles. And it's particles that become waves and waves that become particles. And it parallels what we talk about in Buddhism as emptiness as form and form as emptiness. Like, we don't, we don't really understand what it is. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we kind of make out as though we do, as though it's the bedrock of reality. Um, not that I'm putting consciousness in opposition to the material world, but the thing which is 
closest to it and, he, and is our most intimate self, uh, which we can't deny is the fact that we're conscious. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing if you just, you, if you, if you think your life is boring, you know, or mundane, just reflect on the fact that you're conscious. You know? I mean, the, the, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing that we have this thing called consciousness. And these are not the kind of words that I usually use to describe it, the kind of Christian language, but I, I can't think of a better way of saying it. To, to have consciousness is to have the spark of the divine in us. It's an extraordinary thing that this exists rather than not, that there's something rather than, rather than nothing. To bring it back to Zen practice, if, if you have a philosophical, intellectual way of approaching the world, um, one, it can lead to too much seriousness. Um, it can be lead to being too caught up in the left hemisphere of your brain and caught up in abstraction all the time. And uh, in years gone by, or even now, we've looked up to people who are very good at dealing with abstract concepts like philosophers like Descartes or Kant or Bertrand Russell or whatever, these are the supreme intellectuals, you know, who, who've got a better understanding of life than what we do. But another, another way of looking at it um, is that it's a form of psychopathology. And it's kind of like similar to autism. Um, it's to, to, to glorify abstract thinking and to be able to manipulate concepts um, just disconnects you. And uh, when they look at the lives of people like Descartes or um, Immanuel Kant, um, they, they seem to have an autistic way of relating to other people. They couldn't relate to other people very well. And they saw other people being kind of machine-like. Mm -hmm. um, so to pursue that to that degree and to live in that level of abstraction and to glorify it as the pinnacle of human intelligence is a bit of a myth, right? It's got a, it's got a it's got a significant downside to it to be caught up in that that degree of abstraction. And when we touch base through zazen with the experience of conscious experience, and may I say that consciousness is not some little bubble inside of you. Consciousness into being, it's connected. You you're always conscious of something through your senses, through embodiment. Even if you're conscious of thoughts or memories, you're always conscious of something. It's not a, a separate little identity. Right? It's, it's into being itself. And if you sit in that, as we do in Sarsen, you sit in, in conscious experience of what's coming and going, sound, sight, embodiment, thoughts, the flow of consciousness. Um, what happens, rather than becoming pathological like abstract thinking, you become more intimate 
with experience. Right? Intimacy with life, intimacy with experience is what his practice is basically about. And when you experience intimacy with experience, you start to experience playfulness right? and humour and love. Mm-hmm. They're the, they're the, <coughs> they're the, the uh, experiences that rise out of conscious experience. Because the, 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 the essence of nature is playfulness. Right? The essence of nature is playfulness. It's just playful energy coming and going. Right? But if you want to square it and put it in a box, it's like a dead butterfly, do you know, in a butterfly collection. It's not the butterfly that's flying through the sky. And our Zen practice brings us into the butterfly flying through the sky, not the dead one in the box on a pin. Mm-hmm. So Sazen, it's not just about calming the mind. Yes, it does that. We, we emphasise that a lot. But the other characteristics that aren't, aren't emphasised as much as intimacy, love, playfulness, is what all arises out of this experience. Mm-hmm. And to bring it to the um, to bring it to the experience of suffering, we can we can suffer in a self-centred kind of way. We're just caught up in our, in our suffering. Um, but if we're conscious of our suffering, that's a different experience of it altogether. Yes, you may still suffer. You may still feel pain. But you're in touch with this divine spark within you that actually is capable of experiencing suffering. How amazing is that? Uh-huh. Rather, rather than just being caught in the, the story of it, and it's that, that being mindful of or conscious of suffering is, is the transformative quality within suffering. If you look at one of the readings we did today, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's reading about what practice is, we don't get outside of suffering. We, we transform suffering. We don't get rid of it. We transform it. But the transformation comes through seeing this spark of consciousness that actually permeates it, and that's what makes the difference. Um, just to share with you something um, personally, which I've never spoken about before. Maybe it feels I've, I felt it's too close to my heart, but it, when I reflect on it, it's okay to share with everyone. But when I reflect back on it. Um, as a, I think, a, a turning point in my life as a child that moved me towards something like Zen practice or spirituality. I remember when I was about 10, um, we had a photo album and, and the photo album, like the photos in our house weren't on the walls or anything like that. They were in this album that was stuck away in a cupboard in a dingy old laundry. And um, and had a lot of photos in there of my mother and father and and so on when they were young and when they were courting and dating and just got married and things like that. And as a child, I remember going into into there and opening the cupboard and opening the book by myself, and I saw these pictures of these 
this really happy, joyful, playful couple. And then I reflected on what they were like now and they seemed so miserable and serious. I, 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 really, as a 10-year-old, I, I was shocked. I, I remember it being a, like a really disturbing experience. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. Is this, is this the way human beings have to evolve? Is this, is this what happens to everyone when you get older? Is that you're playful and joyful and then you've got to be serious and drink too much alcohol and argue and things like that? And it was really a disturbing experience. And with disturbing experiences, instead of the nature of them is, is instead of just seeing it once, do you know, and then oh, I don't want to go back there again, I was drawn back to it over and over again, it's like, like is, this, is this really what's happening? Is this what's really got to happen to me? Have I got any choice in this? And so I used, every now and then I'd go back and I'd look at it and I'd be shocked again. And I'm sure that was the, the beginning seed of um, wanting to not just repeat what my parents did or what, what the culture did, but to kind of look outside of it for some other way of, of being. Maybe you've had a similar experience yourself. But what, was, what I saw in those photographs, which I didn't see in my parents when they were older, was that they, they were playful when they were younger and they'd lost the playfulness, you know, and it's that playfulness that we, we need to get in contact with again. In that part of our, our childlike quality is what we need to get in contact with again. We need to dance with the stars. Those stars, right? not the ones on TV, not the celebrities. We need to go dancing with the stars. And the stars can go dancing with us. When we come together for something like this, there's a kind of paradox in what we do. So we do our best to be sitting still. Uh, um, good sazing comes out of just sitting still, not even wriggling your toes or moving your fingers or whatever, just trying to be as still as possible. And if you just, even though you might find your monkey mind hard to kind of calm down and train, if you can at least commit to keep you, keeping your body still right, and, and not wriggling around or anything. To me, that's the best way you can get your mind to settle down. If the body can be still, then the mind will gradually settle down. But if you keep wriggling and moving around and scratching, then it's like the monkey mind's in control. You know, it's playing with your body and, um, and it keeps just going round and round. So to sit still is, and to enjoy just being still is fundamental. And so it's what we do that's different to everyday life. We're always moving around. Um, but paradoxically, we sit still in order to really savour the movement of life. Because life is always moving. It doesn't stay still. We call it impermanence or transience in, in Buddhism. But that's the nature of it. It's always moving. You sit still and your heart keeps beating and you keep breathing in and out and your blood keeps pulsing through your body and the sounds keep coming and going and the thoughts keep coming and going. 
everything is movement. But when we sit still, we've got a chance to really be intimate with that movement, to really savour that, that movement and, and to savour that um, gift of the divine spark, if we want to call it, that we bring to, to uh, being an experiencing human being in this world. So, final words, don't do sarsim because it's good for you. Do it to enjoy it. En en enjoy the, the playfulness of doing nothing. <laughs>